Hey everybody, it's Brock Falk, and I want to thank you for listening to this message from Heritage Church of Christ. We would be thrilled to share more content like this with you and make it easy for you to share it with others. You can find more messages like this on our podcast, or you can download our smartphone app by searching for Heritage Church of Christ in your app store. But most importantly, I hope this message encourages you to take a next step toward a thriving relationship with Jesus. Enjoy. Here in person or joining online, I want to thank you for making it a priority to be tuned in with us today. And I want to express my gratitude to our worship team, particularly today as Matteo Coronado, our worship minister, uh, is out of town on a family trip. He got the invitation to go to Tennessee and to preach a wedding for one of his former students. And, you know, I mean, this is a guy that is used to doing brave things on stage. But when I asked him how he was feeling about preaching a wedding. I saw his hands shaking just a little bit. So I'm eager to hear how it went when he gets back. And I'm thankful to Trevor Chadwick and the rest of our team for taking the ball and running with it today and leading us in worship. This is an important time of the year, an important season in our community because, you know, this week we got the rest of our students back into school, which means that families throughout our community are settling back into the groove of school rhythms and routines. And so to mark the beginning of this season and this new semester together, we're kicking off a new series of messages here at Heritage today, talking about the significance and the potential that comes from sharing our lives together. I'll bet that over the last couple of weeks, as you've been driving around our community, you've probably noticed like I have, every time I drive by one of these big high schools and look out onto the campus, I can see that there's a marching band and a drill team who are out there preparing for this year's marching season. Now, I was never in the marching band, but it is an awe-inspiring sight to see all of the coordination and the precision that comes together after all of those students and those leaders spend, in, spend those hours and hours of practice together. But you know, like I know, that it's the togetherness that makes the marching band so impressive, right? Because uh, just imagine with me for a second that you were driving, you know, down Heritage Trace or driving down Beach Street or North Tarrant and you pass by Central High School or Fossil Ridge or one of these other big schools and you look out there onto the field and you see one band member walking around on the field by themselves right? I mean, you see that one lonely, you know, tuba player, or they're carrying their euphonium or their trumpet or whatever it is, and they're out there walking around blowing their horn in these hundred degree temperatures by themselves, you'd probably call security. Like, go check on that kid. Make sure he's okay, you know? Like, you'd be worried. But when you get several dozen of these students, several dozen of these musicians out there with all of their varied instruments from the woodwind and the brass and the percussion sections, and they're doing their choreographed routine with the intricate footwork and the detailed, complicated musical numbers, and you've got dancers who are leaping and flying in and out between all all the musicians, well, then it becomes a work of art. It becomes something to behold, a thing of beauty that we will all be so proud of on these upcoming Friday nights. But boy, would it look silly if somebody tried to pull that off by themselves. Would it look ever so silly if somebody was out there on the marching field trying to accomplish a show that would be that impressive all alone? And, you know, it's getting all of those students 
together that turns it into something that's much bigger than the sum of its parts. This is a principle we see any time that we take a look around us in nature, of course. There's a video I saw recently. I wanted to show it to you, but I was afraid it would scare some of the children. It's a video from a safari in Kenya, and there's a group that's watching and, you know, looking out at all of these zebra and other wild animals, and suddenly a lioness hops out of this tall grass and is able to separate a young zebra from the rest of the herd and chase it down and tackle it, and they're rolling on the ground, and it looks like it's going to be a bad day for that zebra. In fact, just about the moment when it seems like this lioness is about to drag this zebra off for lunch, one of the more mature zebra bravely circles back and starts charging and kicking at the lion and eventually the lion is forced to release its grip on that younger zebra who gets up and quickly runs back to the safety of the herd and we can see just in that little moment that the being isolated the being alone the being separated from the herd was extremely dangerous but then when they had togetherness when they had community it made it much safer I didn't want to show you that video because I didn't think it might it thought it might be upsetting for some viewers but then I found another video that communicates the exact same concept really well let's watch this one together I think you'll like it even better when we work together. Now you knew the moral of that story before the narrator ever said anything, right? I don't have to work very hard to convince you this morning that teamwork makes a difference because we know we're surrounded by examples, we see daily demonstrations, and we've had personal experiences that tell us that teams can accomplish big things together. But even though we know that, even though we are convinced of the value and the combined strength and creativity and the incredible you know, unification that can happen when a team gets pointed in the same direction, even though we know all of those benefits, I look around me and I see lots and lots of people who are flying solo when it comes to their spiritual journey. I look around me and I see people who are trying to do the spiritual life by themselves. And we know this is not a good idea. You know, last Sunday was Orange Sunday here at Heritage. And if you missed it and you've never heard that terminology, that probably sounds really strange. But what you should know is that over the years, we have found that it's been really meaningful for our church to continually remember this emphasis that we place on partnership between the church and the family. We're trying together to impact the faith of the next generation. And so when we combine the effort and the energy and the inertia of the church, which we symbolize with the color yellow to represent the light of the world, and when we combine that with the love of the family, we find that we can have a bigger impact on our children and our students and impact the faith of the next generation. And I think you'd probably agree with me. There's not anything more important to the church than the faith of the next generation, right? 
I mean, we believe that that's extremely important, and we are convinced that our children and our students deserve to have a team. They deserve to have a group. They deserve to have a team of believers, Christians of all ages, who are partnering together, pulling in the same direction to try to support and encourage the faith development of our children. Because, come on, when it comes to our kids, none of us, none of us are willing to let the kids just figure it out on their own, right? I mean, we are serious about this. We're going to put a team of people. We're going to hire people. We're going to recruit volunteers. We're going to get curriculum. We're going to build, you know, facilities. We're going to do everything that's necessary to try to surround our kids and our students with a team of dedicated volunteers and capable staff and trustworthy, faithful people who are going to be there to set an example for them. Because we understand that our kids' faith needs that kind of community and support and encouragement. But then we think about our own faith. And when it comes to our own faith, when it comes to the marathon of walking with God through young adulthood and middle age and our golden years, lots of people are making that journey alone. Lots of people are running that race by themselves, and sometimes we don't even realize it. Sometimes we don't even think about the fact. We don't even realize that there's an alternative. We might be surrounded by other people who are also running that race, who are also on a spiritual journey. We might be regular participants in worship services. We might be doing lots of spiritual stuff, but there are lots of Christians, people who love Jesus, who are living a lonely life of faith because their faith is not something that they ever discuss with anybody else. And I need to tell you this morning, I think spiritual loneliness is a serious liability for the church. Spiritual loneliness poses a great risk to an individual's faith. And spiritual isolation makes a person vulnerable to being discouraged and being tempted and being drowned out. Following Jesus is not supposed to be a solitary endeavor. It's not supposed to be something that we do on our own. For our own sake and for our own spiritual health, we shouldn't do this by ourselves. But in addition to that, in addition to the risk that it poses for you, I'm convinced that our spiritual isolation and our tendency to insulate ourselves from deeper spiritual relationships it hinders the church. It hinders what we are all about together, and it deprives our community of being able to experience the example that the community so desperately needs. And for, so for the next number of weeks together, we're going to spend time talking together about what's only possible when we share our spiritual lives together. This is going to be the theme for our next few weeks, and we're going to start this conversation today by diving together into a visionary passage that's found in the New Testament book of Romans. So if you've got a Bible with you and you want to turn that on or open that up, you can join me in Romans, which is the sixth book in the New Testament portion of your Bible. And you need to know that Romans is a letter that was written by a guy named Paul. He was one of the earliest followers of Jesus, one of the very first Christian missionaries who tried to go and share the message of Christianity with people who hadn't heard it yet. Paul was an Israelite. He was Jewish. 
He was somebody who had grown up in Jewish society, receiving Jewish education. He knew the Jewish religious law forward and backward. I mean, he knew all of the intricate details. And then as an adult, he had an encounter with Jesus that changed everything for him. Paul was somebody who knew all about the rules that God had laid out to help Israel become or look different than the rest of the world. This was Paul's specialty. But then he had this encounter with Jesus that suddenly turned everything he thought he knew about religion up on its ear. And he suddenly became aware that God had changed things, that God had changed the equation by intervening in human history. Paul became aware that through the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God had given humans new potential, new freedom, new inroads to connection with the divine that humans had never had before. And so Paul changed everything. Paul spent the rest of his life traveling, and preaching and writing and speaking to try to share with people his new realization about God. And that's what Romans is, okay? Romans is a letter that Paul wrote to a group of Christians in the city of Rome, people that he'd never met. I mean, this was hundreds of miles further than he had ever traveled from home. So he sent this letter to these Christians, and he was hoping that as he introduced himself through the letter and introduced his spiritual awareness and his, his theology, he was hoping that these Christians in Rome would come to be supporters of his mission work. And so he was kind of trying to say, hey, here's who I am and here's what I know about God. So Romans is like Paul's big term paper to say this is what Christianity is all about. And today we're picking up the reading in chapter 12. There's only 16 chapters in the whole book, which means we're joining in on a letter that's already three quarters of the way, you know, done. But up to this point, here's what Paul's been doing. He's been laying out this thorough explanation about how sinfulness and rebellion had plagued humanity from almost the very beginning of human history. And Paul pointed out that everybody was affected, everybody's been influenced, even the people who tried faithfully to follow God's instructions, they fell woefully short. But after Paul describes the problem, describes the crisis, then he's able to share the beautiful news, the good news that God has permanently broken the power of sin and rebellion because of his grace. This is the message that Paul had to share that God has intervened in human history and delivered humanity by the grace of Jesus Christ and by the power of God's Holy Spirit, humans have been given the opportunity and the invitation to be adopted into the family of God. This is a brand new thing. But Paul knows. He knows that with that invitation and with that opportunity comes a responsibility. Paul knows that when you've been invited and included and adopted into the family of God, it demands a response. It demands a reaction from us. And once you've been adopted, you have this new identity that you have to live into, this new name, this new future that you are suddenly destined to try to live into. And that's what he's explaining in chapter 12. When we get to chapter 12, these first two verses are verses that we explored in a recent sermon together about a month ago. And he he writes these first two verses and he's talking about offering 
ourselves to God. He's talking about devoting our attention to God. And here's what he says. He says, and so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God. Now, when he says give your bodies to God, it'd be helpful to remember that when Jesus was asked, what's the most important commandment for people to follow? Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is what Paul's referring to when he says give your body. He's talking about give your whole self. Give all of you, heart, soul, mind, strength, effort, time, schedule, resources. Give all of yourself to God. Don't hold anything back. That's what Paul's trying to say here. He says, give your bodies to God because of everything God has done for you. Let your bodies, let your whole self be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind that God will find acceptable. He said, this is, the true, this is truly the way to worship God. God. He's saying, if you will offer your entire being to God, this is what God deserves. But then he goes on in verse two, and he says, don't copy the behavior and the customs of this world. He says, don't do what everybody else is doing. Don't do what comes natural to humanity. He says, don't copy the behavior and customs of the world around you, but instead, let God transform you into a new person by changing the way that you think. And he says, and then when you allow God that kind of access, when you give God that kind of permission to guide and direct your life, he says, then you'll learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Now, we're not going to camp out on those two verses because those are verses we've covered in another message recently. But I, what I want you to see in those two verses is that Paul is prescribing submission for the sake of transformation. He's prescribing that you need to give up control, hand over the, the reins for the sake of letting God do something incredible in your life. And that sounds really intriguing, but it's the kind of thing that's a lot easier read than done, right? To hand over control, to hand over the destiny, the, the, the destination of your life, to hand over your plans, to hand over your desires, to hand over your dreams. I mean, this is not something that's easy to do. Imagine for yourself a, a caterpillar that wanted to be transformed into a butterfly but couldn't bring itself to enter the cocoon. Now, that's laughable because we know, we know from the outside looking in that the cocoon is where the magic happens, right? The cocoon is where the transformation occurs. It's where the total metamorphosis takes place. There's this miraculous event that's in store for a caterpillar if only it will bring itself to surrender to the cocoon, but that's not easy. It's a bit like going into surgery when you're going to be under general anesthesia. Many of you have had that experience, and you know 
that you opted to have this surgery. It's something that you know that your body needs. You may even be looking forward to the new reality when you have, have had these symptoms treated and this procedure is done, but that doesn't make it any less of a serious decision to submit to that doctor putting you to sleep, right? I mean, it's a serious thing to say, I trust you to take care of me and let me undergo this transformation that I'm not going to have any control of. You're going to put me to sleep and I'm going to wake up totally different. Well, this is like the spiritual experience that Paul is describing. He's encouraging his readers to trust God's plan, to trust God's guidance, to entrust their lives and their destination and their plans to God. And he's assuring his readers, he says, you're going to be much better off for trusting God. But then in the next few verses, Paul suddenly makes a hard turn. You see, in verses 1 and 2, he was talking about the relationship that exists vertically between you and God, right? He was saying, offer yourself to God. Offer your body to God. Let God have God's way with your life. And if you'll you know, resist all of the different ideas and conforming to everything that the world around you does and just focus on what God wants, it says, Paul says, then God will start to inform you about what God wants you to do. I mean, we're talking about a vertical relationship in verses 1 and 2. And then in the next few verses, verses 3, 4, and 5, suddenly Paul starts talking about horizontal relationships. He starts talking about the connection between people. And I want you to tune in and don't miss this part. Because when Paul starts to talk, makes that shift from talking to vert, about vertical relationships to horizontal ones, He's pointing to one of the greatest open secrets about God that we find in all the Bible. When I say it's an open secret, what I mean is it's not a secret at all, but not everybody picks up on it. It's totally there. In every book of the Scripture, in all of the teachings of Jesus, there's this open secret about God, and the secret is this, that our vertical relationship and our horizontal relationships are connected they're connected to one another. Jesus said the two most important commandments for somebody to follow, those are love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. In fact, Jesus said that these were co-equal commands. And one of them, love the Lord your God, is all about vertical relationship. But the other one, Love your neighbor is all about horizontal relationship. And Jesus said these are related. These are connected. They're interdependent. In fact, Jesus was letting us know that God is deeply interested in the way that we relate to one another, the way that we treat one another. And Paul knows enough about human you know, tendencies, human nature. Paul's seen enough to know that without divine intervention, we don't always treat each other very well. I mean, we don't just naturally implement selflessness. We don't just instinctively turn on peacefulness. We don't automatically respond with self-control on our own. Those are the fruits of God intervening in our life. But what that means is that when God does get to intervene, when God does get to have God's way, when God is allowed access to our lives vertically, it starts to 
reveal itself in the way we interact horizontally. When God has an impact on this connection, when God is allowed a connection vertically, it starts to change the connections that we have horizontally. Paul puts it this way in verse 3. He says, because of the privilege and the authority that God has given me, I give you each this, I give each of you this warning. Don't think that you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith that God has given us. Now, in the original languages, there's a play on words here because he keeps using the word for think over and over. He says, when you think of yourself, and I know you're going to think of yourself, don't think of yourself too highly, but when you think of yourself, and I know you're going to think of yourself, don't think of yourself too low either, but when you think of yourself as you're bound to do, think of yourself moderately. Think about yourself appropriately. Think about yourself with moderation. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves. And there's an irony here because Paul's saying, I have this authority to tell you not to think of yourselves too highly. But if you look closely, he's not claiming authority because of his own performance or his own, his own accomplishments or because he thinks he's so great. He's saying, God's given me a mission. God's given me an assignment to be a messenger for others. And part of the message is this. When it comes to your faith, don't get conceited. When it comes to your faith journey, don't become too individualistic. When it comes to your faith journey, don't start thinking of yourself as somebody who can handle everything that's coming your way. When it comes to your faith journey, don't think of yourself more highly, more capable, more ready for anything than you ought to. He says, when it comes to your faith journey, be prudent, be honest, give an honest evaluation of yourself. He says, don't try to go it alone. Don't try to assume that you've got what it takes because you have to depend on the gifts that God has given to you. Now, one of those gifts God's given to you is faith. Paul would be the first to say, your ability to have a, a vertical relationship with God, that's a gift and an invitation that God has given to you, and you ought to lean into that gift. But there's another gift from God that's meant to help you grow, and that gift is the gift of your spiritual family. Paul says in verses 4 and 5, just as our bodies have many parts and each part has a special function, so it is with the body of Christ or Christ's body. He's talking about the spiritual family. He says, we are many parts of one body and we all belong to each other. Now, this is a metaphor. It's a metaphor that Paul expands even in greater detail in another letter we have later in the Bible in 1 Corinthians. But this metaphor is highlighting one of Paul's deepest convictions about the church, which is a, it's a lesson that every Christian needs to come to terms with. Here's what Paul's trying to tell us, is that as followers of Jesus, we are dependent on one another in ways that we don't even completely understand. 
He says, as followers of Jesus, God has given us the gift of one another to be a part of our transformative process. It's kind of like that process of going into the cocoon. That's where the magic happens, right? That's where we can't explain all of the transformation that's going on in there, but God gives the caterpillar the gift of that cocoon where the transformation occurs and out comes this butterfly. And Paul is saying, we, all of us, we make up the many parts of one body and we all belong to each other. He's saying we owe each other something. This is part of God's dream. This is part of God's plan for us to be in this relationship and we owe each other something. We're dependent on each other. Here's part of what Paul's trying to say. He's saying that if Brock is ever going to become the kind of follower of Jesus that Brock is destined to be, that God dreams for Brock to be, then Brock needs your help. Brock needs your help. And, and I don't mean just your help. I mean Andrew's help and Mason's help and Lisa's help. I mean like individually, Brock needs your help. That's part of what Paul's trying to say. But the other truth is that if you are going to be the follower of Jesus that God dreams for you to be, then you need our help. And not just collectively our help, you need Brock's help and you need Mason's help. I mean, you, we need each other. But here's the other thing Paul's trying to say that maybe it would be easy to miss. Most of all, if we are going to be what the surrounding community needs us to be, then we all have to be a part of it. We all have to chip in. There is no going it alone. Because the undeniable, unavoidable truth of the spiritual life is that you will never be your best self by yourself. You will never, ever be your best spiritual self on your own. You can't do it. That's not how it works. That's not how we've been designed. That's not how God has drawn it up. You need spiritual community. You need connection with sisters and brothers who are also listening for God's will because you will never become your best spiritual self by yourself, even though it's tempting to try. You know, most people remember the most famous of Aesop's fables. You probably remember stories like the tortoise and the hare or the boy who cried wolf. But there's another fable that's buried in that catalog of fables, that big collection of stories. There's one that's not known quite as well. In fact, I'd be surprised if very many of you had ever heard of the belly and the members. But it goes like this. One day it occurred to the members of the body that they were doing all the work while the belly got all the food. And so they held a meeting and they decided to go on strike until the belly consented to do its proper share of the work. For a day or two, the hands refused to pick up food, the mouth refused to receive food, and the teeth, well, that, the teeth had no work to do at all. But after a day or two, the members of the body began to find themselves in poor condition. The hands could hardly move. The mouth 
was parched and dry, and the legs, well, they were unable to support the rest of the members of the body. And together they came to realize that turns out the belly was doing necessary work for the body after all, and everybody would have to go work together or the entire body would go to pieces. You know, you read that story and it's easy to think, to see from the perspective of all of those other members of the body that the belly just seemed to be sitting there, not doing very much. And the belly needed them. The belly needed them to provide the food, to send the food its way. The belly was totally dependent on all of those other members of the body. It's easy to see it from that perspective. But of course, the thing that makes this a wisdom story, the thing that makes this a meaningful fable is the reality that the other members of the body needed the belly too. Their needs were mutual. They were dependent on each other. And the irony is that all of those other body parts, all those other members of the body thought that for a short time they could go it alone and have success. They thought for a little while that they could continue on without the belly's help. And they tried and it lasted for a few hours, but almost immediately they started to feel the effect. They started to feel themselves falling short of their potential. They lost their capabilities and they started to run out of steam. Their willpower wasn't enough. Their internal motivation wasn't enough to push them on through and they were missing out on the benefit of taking the journey together. And Paul's here to say the same thing's true for you. In the spiritual life, the same thing is true for you because there are parts of this body of faith, parts of this family of believers that are essential for your spiritual growth, whether you've come to realize it or not. And you will never, ever be your best spiritual self by yourself. You'll never reach your potential. You'll never grow to who you're supposed to be on your own. But the opposite's also true, that we, we will never be who we're intended to be without you. We will never be what God has called us to be unless we experience your contribution, your gift from the Spirit. And so this fall, this semester, in these coming weeks and months, as we kick off this series, I want to invite you. I want to invite you to make it a point to be here on Sundays just as often as you can or to tune in when you have to miss. I want you to not make sure that you don't miss these messages because they're going to be important for you. They're going to be important for your spiritual growth. They're going to be important for your spiritual journey and your spiritual health. But here's something else. Your presence and your involvement, your participation and your contribution, those are equally important for somebody else in this family. For me and for all the rest of us. And so here's my challenge for you is that this fall, this semester, as you're here, don't just show up here, be here. Don't just show up and Filter in and filter out. Be here. Because your being here is part of what God's doing to change me and to change us and to change our community. 
Our church has a mission. In fact, all, every church has a mission in this community, and part of the mission is to strengthen you. Part of, the, part of the goal of this church is to encourage you in your spiritual growth, but part of the need of this church is for your contribution as well, for you to be here, to be a part of what God is doing in this place. And so let's journey together. And this semester, as we consider these messages and think about what God can do when we all show up, let's do it together. Let's make the journey together, and let's see what God has in store for us.